Listening to TMB DOS, they must be destroyed on sight. The following podcast about film often contains foul language, discussions of an adult nature, and spoilers for the films discussed are to be expected. Now take it away, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on sight! Welcome back. It is They Must Be Destroyed on Site, episode 190. I'm your host, Lee, Skull Fuck the Moon, Russell. Joined by my co-host, Daniel, Throw Dummy from a Train Harper. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to discussing proscenium staging and uh, various forms of uh, paper cutouts. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of that in these three films we're going to look at. <laughs> so we're finally doing it. Ladies and gentlemen, we're 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 starting in the nineteen uh, tens. Well, the nineteen the nineteens, I guess is the noughties. The nineteen noughties at that. There you go. Not even not even our noughties. No, the, the earlier noughties. Yeah, and we're gonna move not our way up. One hundred and fifteen years ago. Of <laughs> uh, one one film, uh, a French film that was made closer to the French Revolution than this year. <laughs> That's, this is uh, this we we can make those comparisons for a while i think that's gonna be our reality yeah, yeah. so yeah so yeah we're gonna be looking at some silent films uh this time around we're gonna have a, a trip to the moon from 1902 the great train robbery from 1903 and we're going to have the battle in the clouds from 1909 before we do that we do have some comments to get through here so uh we'll get into these did you see darren wilson's latest meme on the uh, facebook page uh, which one? Uh, the uh, Chinatown meme. I did. Yeah. I did. <laughs> Put uh, Leo DiCaprio in there, and uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Rick Dalton got a bit part in Chinatown, at least. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, Rick Dalton, I feel like Rick Dalton in films of the 60s and 70s, I feel like whenever we get to the 60s and 70s, we need to uh, discuss what would Rick Dalton's role in this film be. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can start be- that now. If Rick Dalton had been around in 1909. What would he have been in the airship destroyer? 
one of the one of the hooded, vaguely German uh, <laughs> guys, like maybe? dropping bombs from the uh, clear scaffold. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, again, thank you, Darren. Keep the uh, memes coming. That was awesome. We need more memes. I can't wait for I can't wait for the trip to the moon meme. Mm, Seeing yeah. one of our faces with a rocket hanging out of it. <laughs> David Wilt has a couple comments here. He says, uh, one of these days you should review the Wes Craven film Last House on the Left. Yeah, maybe. Maybe we'll do that. We, we kind of already did when we did uh, the uh, Night Train Murders. Yeah. That's kind of like the superior version of that film. But uh, yeah, we might get into it. You know, I'm, I'm not big on, oh, let's see a rape revenge film. I, just, I, I, feel, I, feel, I feel like uh, my answer to that is just really only going to it's just going to piss people off. Oh, hold on. That's the best reason to do it. So I'm down. <laughs> yeah. Let's I make mean, our I'm, audience really angry. That's the key. I mean, I'm not against revisiting it. I'm I'm not a fan of that film. And then not, be, not because it's a rape revenge film. I'm not a fan of that film just because I don't think it's actually all that good. <laughs> so yeah. actually, I think Wes Craven is highly overrated, but that's just me. David Wood also goes on to say, I heard uh, that you are... Uh, reviewing silent short films. Indeed we are. Uh, and one of them will be The Great Train Robbery. If you have ever seen the film Goodfellas, there's a scene at the end of the film that is very similar to the end of The Great Train Robbery. It's a scene where Joe Pesci's character shoots at the camera. Yeah, you don't say. That's probably one of the most influential uh, movie scenes ever, honestly. Scorsese directly lifted that from Great Train Robbery. Like, this is, I think this is one of Scorsese's, like, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's been, like, asked about this film and has talked about it. Uh, to some degree, he did. He did a whole. Um, he did a whole documentary about the history of cinema. Yeah, and uh, which we, you know, we don't really do that sort of thing here. But I think it's it would be worth uh, doing a discussion of that at some point. Honestly, uh, maybe after we get to the end of this year, we should we should do that. Um, yeah, see what comes. My friend Peter Davies, who I know from uh, Beer Circles, although um, before he was doing beer reviews and stuff, he was actually deep into movies. He was. Big, big fan of sort of like uh, European exploitation stuff. He has a uh, YouTube page called uh, Mondo Squalido, and it's still up there. It's still active. He doesn't uh, really post on it anymore, but there's a lot of cool stuff on there, and I'll actually link that in the uh, in the show notes. Um, he said he just watched Fulci's Cat in the Brain for the first time. Trash at its finest, and seeing Fulci kind of mocking himself in films from the genre was a real treat. As cheap and crude as his effects can be in execution... I've never experienced gore like his. I've always get freaked out by thinking, imagine if your body actually did that uh, whenever I watch a Fulci flick. Uh, this was no exception. Yeah, imagine a cat yeah. <laughs> coming out of your skull. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A film a film uh, I really liked when we, when, he, when we did it way back when. I feel like I'm a little bit more familiar with Fulci now. I need to revisit it. But, uh, you know, good, yeah. good film and uh, agreed. Uh, and then we have Jeff Williams. Uh, this time it's his recommendations of the week. <laughs> and he wants to add to our 1930s list that is already bloated. <laughs> we could do a whole year of 1930s at this point. <laughs> he says, recommendations of the week, any 1930s train thriller. You guys can't cover movies from the 30s without doing a nice train thriller. Here's a few good ones. The 39 Steps, The Lady Vanishes, Shanghai Express, Berlin Express and by whose hand? So uh, we will add them all to the list of possibles, and we will do at least one of them. For sure. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll we'll promise to do one train thriller from the 1930s. So there you go. Yeah. 
If we get to the 1930s, who knows? <laughs> yeah, we just can you imagine if we do a whole year and never get beyond 1929? <laughs> I think we might actually alienate our audience that way. <laughs> yeah, we might. We might like seriously start pissing people off. Like <laughs> we gave these We're fuckers still way in too 1913. Many... <laughs> yeah, we gave these fuckers way too many chances. <laughs> they could have left us long ago. They're in for the long haul. I now. think so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we do. But again, appreciate... but again, if we did that, we would get an entirely different set. <laughs> it would be one of those weird internet things of these two guys. They just sit and drink beer and talk about silent cinema from the 1910s. <laughs> what the fuck is this? I'm pretty sure we'd uncover like some deeply, deeply niche Twitter communities that are that yeah. are going on. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we might actually be able to get movies silently. That that Twitter, we might be able to get that Twitter person on the podcast if we did that. You know? Yeah, that, that that's the weird thing. It's like there's so many movies that were actually made between like the 1860s to the 1900s that are just lost. The the, the guys we're going to be talking about tonight. They have so many credits under their belt. So many of them are just, they're gone. Yeah. They don't exist. Yeah, we'll get to that here shortly, I think. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to play a little bit of music, uh, some podcast promos, and we're going to come back and uh, start talking about these movies. Broadcasting from the Cursed Earth, the Psycho-Semanticast. Let us face, without panic, the reality of our time. The fact that atom bombs may someday be dropped on our cities. And let us prepare for survival by understanding the weapon that threatens us. To have a, uh, an ignorant, uh, thin-skinned megalomaniac uh, who sends off uh, you know, Twitters at 3 a.m. if somebody angered him. Neo-Nazis turning up in Washington, D.C. to have a rally saying, Heil Trump. We talk about politics. I knew I couldn't trust you corporate greaseballs. We talk about movies. You can't come down here and arrest people just because of what they look like. Are you crazy? But that's police harassment. We talk about political movies. We're in trouble. The whole world's in trouble. They're all around us and we never knew it. You can only see them with these special glasses. The Psycho Semanticast. Railroad Bill, Railroad Bill, he never worked and he never will. I'm gonna ride old Railroad Bill. Railroad Bill, he was a mighty mean man. He shot the midnight lantern from the brakeman's hand. I'm gonna ride old Railroad Bill. Railroad Bill took my wife, said if I did not like it, he would take my life. I'm gonna ride old Railroad Bill. Railroad Bill, Railroad Bill, he never worked and he never will. I'm gonna ride old Railroad Bill. Gone up on the mountain, gone out west. 38 special sticking out of my vest I'm gonna ride old railroad bill Gonna get me a pistol just as long as your arm Kill everybody ever done me harm I'm gonna ride old railroad bill Got a 38 special on a 45 frame How in the world can I miss them when I got dead aim I'm gonna ride old railroad bill 
Railroad Bill, Railroad Bill, he never worked and he never will. I'm gonna ride old Railroad Bill. Honey, honey, think I'm a fool. Think I would quit you while the weather is cool. I'm gonna ride old Railroad Bill. Railroad Bill, Railroad Bill. He never worked and he never will. I'm gonna ride old railroad bill, ride old railroad bill. All right, we're back, and um, I think Daniel was saying we we should talk a little bit about what films were at this period before we actually get kind of into the reviews of these. Yeah, I feel like we need to kind of land on that. Uh, a couple of times, especially in these first few weeks. <laughs> Cinema as we know it was basically born in the late 1880s and early 1890s uh, by Thomas Edison. The very first, uh, I mean, if you look at like the History of Film Wikipedia page, it says the, uh, the, the first, <laughs> although the start of the History of Film was not clearly defined, the commercial public screening of 10 of the Lumiere Brothers short films in Paris on the 20th of December 1895 can be regarded as the breakthrough of projected cinema, cinematographic motion pictures. And uh, the first of the films that we're looking at now is from 1902. Um, so we're really talking about like just seven years after the whole idea of projecting images for an audience was sort of born in a, yeah. in a commercial sense. These would not have been like, <laughs> you don't buy a ticket for 10 bucks and go to like the blockbuster to see the seven minute long great train ride or whatever, <laughs> you know, <laughs> these were kind of part of a package or these were like kind of projected in the middle of, of vaudeville shows. And this was kind of part of a kind of kind of part of more of a like kind of pre-existing thing. And it's not really until you get to the end of the 1910s and into the 1920s that you start to see like really kind of birth of a nation is kind of the, the, the big yeah. version of that. But um, when you really start to see, you know, Oh, a film experience where you go to see a movie and you kind of get like multi-real things. Uh, yeah. Maybe early night kind of 1910s, but here this is, you know, we're looking at these, these kind of short films. We're looking at this kind of, this kind of thing. Um, but it doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. And I think that that's kind of the thing that, it's very easy for us to kind of look at them and kind of view them on the internet archive or look at them on YouTube or whatever, Mm -hmm. and sort of like take them out of that context of like how people would have viewed them at the time. Um, I was looking, you know, who, who was the oldest person who was ever, you know, kind of like, what's the earliest person alive who was actually captured on film. And there's some debate about this. Mm -hmm. Um, Most people would say, uh, you know, kind of either late, is it the, the late 1700s? Like, there's some speculation that there's this woman in this Macedonian film who was hypothetically born in 1795 and was filmed in, you know, like 1910 when she was 114 years old. I think that oh. most people, there's no documentation of, of her yeah. birth date, so that's probably exaggerated. But we have pretty good evidence that the earliest people, that there are people who were born in, like, 1805, appeared in some bit of motion picture cinema at some point, you know? And so while that feels like kind of a long time ago, it's also like yesterday in the sense of like kind of the broad strokes of history. But I also think it, it represents kind of looking at these old movies and looking at the stuff from this era. It does kind of represent, we're looking at something that's made in 1902 
that has like 40 year old actors in it who would have been born in the civil war. Yeah. You know, sort of thing. And I feel like looking at this stuff and not sort of realizing that and just kind of looking at it and kind of guffawing at it or kind of looking at it and kind of thinking, Oh, it kind of looks silly or whatever is sort of missing the, the, the historical import. And I'm not trying to say we need to get too deep into that, but I think it's something that I kind of come back to whenever I look at any kind of old film, even the stuff that we've covered already, even from the sixties and seventies, you know, you kind of look at it and go, uh, almost everyone in this movie is dead. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and and um, at this point, you're literally looking at, like, this is this is a piece of history um, that was made for an audience at a particular time. And I think it's worthwhile to kind of keep that in mind for this project, at least for the first, you know, few months until we get into stuff that feels a little bit more modern. Um, yeah. And particularly if the audience wants to kind of go watch them for themselves. I hope that you do think of it in that way, is that this is a piece of history but it's also it wasn't meant to be that at the time this was meant for commercial exhibition this was meant to be something that was a crowd pleaser and while these are films that come to us they have been preserved for whatever reason mostly through their exemplary quality as they were conceived of at the time there were lots of other films that were made around this time and even decades later that just got completely that were, that were just never preserved and just got completely lost and that's part of the problem with studying this stuff and part of the problem with viewing it is you know you don't necessarily understand the context because like everything else is gone so. yeah and uh, i think also to keep in mind here this is so even even though you know films were, you know, like the middle half of the, the previous century in, in the, the, the 1800s yeah. is, is kind of when it started. Um, this stuff is... I mean, the earliest old, films are like Edison in the 1880s, right? Yeah, uh, well, the, I think there's some stuff from the 1860s around, uh, somewhere around there, okay. if, if I'm not mistaken. But the, the, the big thing to, to sort of keep in mind here is that these were all sort of people experimenting with this medium like this was such a new thing and these people were kind of defining what you could do with it they were totally just experimenting like a lot of these short films and the reason a lot of this stuff is just short stuff is they were just testing this stuff out on like they'll they'll take a they'll take a film of cat laying on stool or something like that (laughs) and that's the whole feature you know and one of the earliest films is like man sneezing and it was like one of edison's assistants yeah, and it's a two-second film, and for a while it was like the earliest film on the on IMDb. You know, kind of back when I first started. You know, yeah, if if, stuff, if so. you go to the uh, if you go to the Library of Congress YouTube website, they have all this stuff there. Yeah. Like they just have a shit ton of all this stuff that that still sort of exists, and and there's a lot of stuff there. And then keep in mind, that's just like a drop in the ocean of stuff that was lost from yep. this, these sort of eras. so uh, well, And everything before 1923, at least in the U.S., is uh, in public domain at this uh-huh. point. Um, which is, uh, you know, it's a shame that that doesn't continue to happen. It's like yeah. this massive company that prevents that. I think we need to add Steamboat Willie to our list of films to discuss at some <laughs> point. So, um, but yeah, no, I think we should we should uh, dive into the movies, I think. Um, yeah. I, th- I think we've, we've been modeling enough about how much of this stuff has been destroyed. And we'll come back to this over and over again, I'm sure. But yeah. The first one we're going to look at is A Trip to the Moon from 1902. This is directed by George Millet. Millet? Yeah. Milius. Um, we'll call him Milius. Milius. John Milius. It's John Milius. <laughs> John Milius. <laughs> previous, like, great slightly uncle. different filmmaker. Right. Conan. Yeah. You know, Trip to the Moon, you know. 
but uh, he was a French illusionist, and he is widely regarded as kind of the the great granddaddy of special effects. A lot of the techniques he's like, like I said again, a lot of the stuff early on is experiments. This is one of those guys that was experimenting all the time. Like he was developing right. new special effects techniques, um, just new ways of shooting stuff. Well, he was experimenting. It, like there was one. There's there's a story, possibly apocryphal. I haven't seen this kind of documented anywhere, but. There's a story of uh, he was like filming, he was just kind of filming stuff, just experimenting with the technology. The, a bus went by the camera. The camera malfunctioned at that particular moment. And then he starts it back up a couple minutes later, and then there's a baby carriage kind of in the in the shot at that particular spot. And then he develops it, and then is like, oh, you can make things disappear and reappear just with editing. And um, that's very clearly on display in a trip to the moon, you know, <laughs> like, like, you know. Um, and again, we're talking 1902. So we're talking like seven years after you're doing basic filming of things and distributing it so that people can just watch like a dude sneezing, <laughs> you know, and yeah. distribution. You end up with with this, which I don't know. Do, do you want to do a plot summary here? I do have one here. This is uh, starring George himself as uh, Professor Barbin Folius. And and here's the thing. This guy was good enough to, in like 1930s before he died, uh, set down and like, I think he recorded like a a record or a phonograph or something like that, like actually stating what the cast was. Because back in the day, they weren't stating the casts for these things. Like there were no no, credits. There's no credits here. Yeah, no. Like, yeah. Um, Again, there's no thought that this is going to be preserved. There's no thought that any of this matters. Until... Well, he just he destroyed a lot of his own work. Yeah, yeah. Like that—that's how much he didn't really think about the future of this stuff. <laughs> well, do you have the uh, do you have the raw footage from your uh, YouTube videos? Exactly. Yeah. No. Do you have it, the raw audio from this podcast? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it'll be gone as, as soon as I do the editing. So yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you, you got to kind of think of it in that context. I mean, honestly, him doing all these short films. That is kind of the YouTube of that era, in a way. <laughs> right. But I mean, you know, um, but George Milius, the very first YouTuber. <laughs> Bluette Bernon as Phoebe, Francois Lalament as the officer of the Marines, Henry Donnelly as the captain of the rocket, and Jules Eugene Legree as the parade leader. And there's all kinds of other people in this too. Just like yeah. these are all theatrical actors. Uh, I mean. Yeah. He actually ran a theater before he was even doing this stuff. So um, it was just like, hey, all my theater friends, and you'll definitely see this watching this. It's like, yes, this is theater being oh, filmed. No, definitely, definitely. Right? Uh, so synopsis here for some called uh, Huggo on IMDb. Not Hugo, Huggo, which could be creepy or good, one or the other. I don't, I don't know. We're going uh, to choose. We're gonna choose they're just really friendly. It's just like a hug. Yep. Uh, an association of astronomers uh, have convened to astronomers? listen to astronomers. <laughs> astronomers. <laughs> astronomers. Yeah, you say you say the word. You're better. At astronomers. Words. Yeah. Um, has convened to listen to the plan of Professor Barbenfolis, uh, their president, to fly to their professor is also their president of France. That's interesting. <laughs> That's actually kind of uh, forward thinking, really. You have like a <laughs> rational scientist as uh, it's, your. It's president. very 1902. <laughs> you know, it's very. It's that very. We're looking forward into a bright future, 
and uh, just wait till we get to 1909 about how uh, that's going to turn out, by the way. Yeah. So, <laughs> There's a sea change coming, folks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Don't worry. Don't worry. We're going to get there in about 45 minutes. It's going to be fine. With one dissenting voice uh, quashed by Barbara Fullis and the other members, the plan is approved with Barbara Fullis choosing five others to accompany him. Most of the preparation for the trip is in building a vessel and launching mechanism, which resembles a large bullet and a large gun, respectively. Hitting the moon in the eye, the six land safely at their destination. They find that much about the moon is wonderful and fantastical, but also that much is not what they would have liked to encounter as it is life-threatening. They have to find a way to get out of their alien predicament and get back home safely. And yeah, basically, they go to the moon, they encounter some shit, they come back home. That's kind of the story. And They, they find natural wonders. They find natural um, threats. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of mythology uh, involved. They find some mythical creatures. Uh, a mushroom grows mm-hmm. uh, out of, of an umbrella. Okay. There's some magic that happens. Then they run into natives who threaten them, want them off their land, and they run away. And yeah. then they where, where fall off a giant cliff <laughs> and then land back on Earth. Because that's which how is, space which works. Is, which is clearly indication that uh, the moon is flat. Um, mm. at, this, at this time, <laughs> everyone knew the moon was flat. All of this was meant to be completely 100% realistic physics. And so, they fell into yeah. the concave earth. Yeah, you yeah, know, exactly, yeah, exactly, the, exactly, yeah. All the conspiracies are confirmed here. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I should just mention before we get into this, uh, this was inspired by a wide variety of, of sources, but yeah. most of it's Jules Verne's uh, oh, yeah. sort of stories. It, it, um, it reeks of Jules Verne, yeah. Yeah, from the Earth to the Moon and around the Moon. There's a little bit of H.G. Wells in this as well, uh, First Men on the Moon. And also, <laughs> I, I saw sources credited that were basically French ripoffs of uh, Jules Verne's uh, novels, like other printers yeah. would take his novels and, <laughs> and <laughs> fucking print them without his permission and shit. You go, Le Jules Verne, and then yeah. suddenly, you know, no, no, we don't know you. It's Julie Vernon. <laughs> yeah, we just we just renamed all the characters, and, uh, mm. you know. But uh, there, there are different versions of this film. A lot of these films, you know, different frames per second, basically. So yeah. you can see this film at anywhere from about nine minutes to 18 minutes in running length, uh, depending on that. There's a version on the Internet Archive that has live descriptions of what's happening on screen, which I think is worthwhile for people first kind of coming to this film. Should be, yeah. I watched that one. I watched a couple of versions of all of these just because mm-hmm. they're so short. It was easy to just kind of kind of click around and, and watch them a little bit. It's worth kind of watching a few different versions if you want to kind of get a full experience of kind of what this would have looked like originally. Um, but that version I thought was really interesting. Um, there's also a, a kind of big colorized version that uh, ended up on Netflix a couple of years ago uh, where they, they found like one of the original color prints and then they kind of sort of like cleaned it up and perfected it and sort of, sort of put it up there. Um, and I presumably it's still on Netflix. I haven't checked in a while, but. Um, and, and, and yes, indeed, ladies and gentlemen, there were color film back in that, yeah. in those days, but. And they were hand colored. They yeah, were hand colored. Yeah. On the film. Hand painted on the film. And so, yeah, no, hopefully we'll, hopefully we'll, discuss some of that as we as we move forward but um but yeah no 
this is the stagiest of the of the three we're going to discuss today. Yeah. Obviously, it's the earliest, although only by you know a year or two. This really feels like a, a an interesting kind of stage play with with some special effects. In particular, I'm thinking like everybody remembers the shot of the uh, the the rocket kind of landing in the moon's eye. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the the shot of that big cannon, which is essentially you know like you know what we think of as a matte painting, but it's really just right. a stage. It's it's it's, it's a set. And they just kind of wander off and they just kind of gesture towards like the giant cannon pointing towards the moon. It's really effective. I mean, you know, kind of later on, you also get the shot of, uh, you get the sequence of, uh, you know, the crew kind of running through the moon and uh, the selenites kind of, kind of coming in and they're, they're hitting them with umbrellas yeah. and they poof into nothingness. And there's, there's kind of some, some interesting uh, special effects there. Um, but that's also kind of shot on this like kind of very, you know, proscenium staging with, with sort of a, a matte painting, just, just sort of a painting behind them sort of thing. And uh, it actually compares favorably with some of the like 70s Doctor Who episodes. It does, yeah. You know? <laughs> um, you know, partly because it's in black and white and partly because it's in low resolution where you can't really quite see the seams quite as easily. But I'm also struck by, you know... Uh, there, there is a critique of imperialism here, you know, in this little eight minute long movie, you know, this is kind of about these, these astronomers who are kind of going off and, you know, the fact that the, the, the astronomers also like the King of France or the president of France or whatever, um, a little bit on the nose, you know, at that time. Um, and it is about like, we're going to go off and kind of explore like, Oh, look at this crazy world we've discovered. And then like the natives don't want us there. And then we have to run away. It's hard to say like this is like incredibly sophisticated, but it's, I think it certainly would have been like seen by audiences at the time as the critique that it is. And um, this was really at the peak of the scramble for Africa and all that sort of thing. And I think yeah. there there is a kind of um, also this is only a few years after um, H. G. Wells uh, did the War of the Worlds, uh, you know, sort of thing. And I, and I think there is a there is an undercurrent. I mean. <laughs> we'll save it for the last film we're going to discuss yeah. about like World War One, but there is this sense that like there's a reckoning coming uh, for Europe, um, and I and I think that that's something that you we kind of see, particularly in this film and uh, and the last film that we're going to discuss. Um, I think yeah, I mean if this was longer, like if this was a if this was like a half hour or something like that, you kind of feel like maybe there might be a couple scenes where there's they they flesh out the fact that one of these uh, moon creatures comes back with them to earth and you could almost go with, with like the, uh, the sort of uh, Pocahontas kind of mm-hmm. idea of like, you know, bringing, you know, bringing native Americans back over to England or whatever, you know, and wasn't the there first... a Tarzan novel that did that too? Or am I, I kind Tar- of Tarzan might've done that. I, yeah. I'm not, I, I can't quote me on that, but um, yeah, but, there, there's a lot of cool stuff in this. Again, like you, like you said, the, the version on the Internet Archive that's kind of explaining what's going on is definitely a must, I think, because I felt forced to closely watch what was going on because there's so much going on in the background because yeah. everyone's doing their own thing and there's no text explaining any of this shit to you. So you got to right. kind of watch it, right? I like how the movie goes from extremes of greatness to kind of shoddiness because there's like these brilliant fades at times. Mm-hmm. And then there's these like really harsh cuts where it's just like, <laughs> Oh wow. <laughs> really, really noticeable. And to be clear, like someone explaining what's happening on screen at the time was something that it was done routinely with films of this era. Like yeah. sometimes they would kind of do a live orchestra. This one definitely um, was. And then they would just uh, kind of play whatever, 
you know, they felt kind of worked with the, the film. So there would have been like, there, there is no canonical version of what the soundtrack would have been. For yeah. This, you know? Especially this one. Um, yeah, especially this early. Um, but, but yeah, no, there absolutely would have been like, you could go and see this film and then like some, some guy with <laughs> some guy just kind of booming into your ear. And here we see the explorers reach the selenites. <laughs> and this guy doesn't like that guy. And he pounds him with an umbrella, you know, like, and I can imagine like some of them would like mispronounce this shit. So you'd be like the, Here's the guy of the Selenites, and uh, <laughs> these guys in the pointy hats are astronomers, and uh... yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I, I really like the sort of uh, set slash matte painting kind of backdrops they have on this. Yep. Some of the landscape shots and like the cityscapes that they show, like the sort of industrial cityscape that they show at one point looks really good it gives you that forced perspective that works really well and at the same time you know they have smoke coming out of the smokestacks in the distance you know the the way they do it uh again also like you said the shot of the actual gun that shoots the uh lunar module to the moon all it is is, really just a giant bullet which again we're firing a giant bullet at the indigenous people of the moon. Yeah. Can we be a little bit more obvious about our metaphor? (laughs) But yeah, that whole thing is just a painting. And all there is, is at the end of the barrel, there's a hole where they, they, you know, they blow like a firecracker and then they have some Mm -hmm. smoke come out. Like that's it. That's that's a special effect. And it looks really good. Which Um, you could. And again, like if you imagine this as being something where I'm going to go see a vaudeville show, I'm going to go see, you know, some people acting on a stage and kind of doing uh, some things. And then in between the sort of live acts, I get to see this brand new technology, which looks really cool. This would have fit very neatly into that, right? This would have fit very neatly into that sort of like phenomenon of I'm watching a staged production, but it's got editing and I don't have to wait for people to move sets around. And, but, but it also looks very much like a stage. You know, Especially like, the way it's shot, because the camera never moves from that perspective of you're in the audience watching a play. Like it, exactly. it's shot that way. Like the camera is always like far away from the action, so you see all the action happen in one shot more than anything else. Like you do have that one moment where it zooms in on the moon, where it's supposed to be the perspective of the rocket going to the moon, kind of thing. And I think actually that was done with, uh, if if I read correctly, like sort of like a dolly kind of thing on a track being pulled towards the camera instead of the camera going towards, because they didn't have zoom. Yeah, no, these, these cameras, they don't have zoom lenses. They just, it gets very, this kind of fixed focal length kind of thing. And, um, you know, the stuff, uh, you know, you can't, they're, they're heavy. You can't really move them around. So it's easier to like take the little, you know, mock-up of the moon with the face and just kind of roll it forward. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, which kind of reminds me a little bit of like how they shot the, uh, the original opening crawls of the, of star Wars, uh, you right. know, that sort of where they've literally got like a camera and a plate and they're like moving the camera. <laughs> line, you know? so it's like, now don't you, you can't do that with a computer. No, no, that, that didn't exist that time. So, you know? yeah. Uh, I, I do like that some of the special effects here are sometimes they're very symbolic representations of what they're literally supposed to be on screen. The narrative on this film is not as linear and set in reality as films to follow it in a certain right. respect. Because So the shot of the rocket hitting the moon clearly hits the moon 
in the eye, the man on the moon kind of thing. Like a big pizza pie. That's a yeah. yeah. And, and he kind of like bleeds out cheese or something from his eyeball or whatever. And then the next shot, the moon surface and the rocket is, you know, snugly, comfortably, you know, just sort of landed on this rock formation right. or whatever. So there's this weird kind of like switch from sort of almost like metaphorical representation of what's happening to the literal again. Like it, it doesn't seem the director was all that interested in uh, continuity in a, in a literal well, sense. Continuity like didn't exist at this yeah. point. You know? Like the very idea of even judging a film by that basis. Like I, I don't want to like kind of treat the people in the past as being like sort of, sort of lesser intellects or anything, but like, that whole question just seems to have not existed at this point. Well, no, like, I... But 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 I think the film I think I think you're hitting on something interesting, which is the film is it's romantic and it's I mean it predates surrealism in a way, but it but mm-hmm. it, it exists in this kind of world of um of metaphor and myth, you know, where yeah. um the explorers they go to sleep and then suddenly like the big dipper appears and like the stars become like women. And then, you know, the Big Dipper goes away and then, like, Saturn is there. And I feel like there's some kind of deep metaphor that's intended by the filmmaker, by, like, the choice of exactly which astronomical bodies are, are get, get to be inhabited by human beings that I'm just not privy to, that maybe it, audiences it, of the time were a little bit more aware of, you know? That's what I'm through... thinking. And it feels like something that people who are, you know, deeply into watching stage productions of the time it might have been much more of a cultural thing where they were aware of these things a lot well, more. And, like, and a lot of the audience would have also had a classic education. I mean, sort of yeah. like the, the middle class and above. Like people would have, you know, would have would have had sort of a working knowledge of Greek, for instance. They're, yeah, they're, they're they're catching like a reference to like Homer or something like that, mm-hmm. and we're catching a reference to fucking Homer Simpson at this point. You know, kind right. of. The, <laughs> but we know how intercutting works, and so therefore we are vastly superior. Here. Yeah, we, we're we're so much more brilliant. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> but no, I I like this a lot. Um, yeah. There's a lot of good early sort of sci-fi stuff in this. Like you can see how fucking influential this is. Like the sh- the, the shot of the man in the moon with the rocket in his eye is kind of like it, it's it's beyond pop culture. It's just kind of. Yeah there like everyone yeah, knows no, it. i mean and, and ultimately i think this is one where and, and i i'm gonna recommend all three of these and say mm-hmm. you'll know at least two of these by reputation maybe not the third and you'll know them as this sort of you know guy yeah, i know I, I know what that is um it's really worth sitting down and like kind of turning the lights off and focusing for 10 minutes and, and kind of watching these and really yeah. looking at them if you're somebody who really wants to kind of understand cinema and really wants to kind of understand what this is there's some interesting stuff here. It's not just an artifact of history. There, there is a real kind of artistic product here, and uh, really, I'm kind of like thinking like I might make some of the some of the uh, shots from this my my wallpaper, particularly if I could get like those those like big paintings of the of the of the cannon. Like mm-hmm. I'd love to have that as my as my uh, computer wallpaper. You know what I mean? Like uh, so. Yeah, no, a lot of the stuff just looks really good, too. Yeah. Like, you know... It, I wonder if that was preserved. Can you imagine if, like, you could go and, like, uh, see that somewhere? I bet you it wasn't, though, because... Like, no, of course not. Of course not. Because he... Course not only did he destroy a lot of his stuff, a lot of the stuff was just destroyed by World War One too. Yeah, like, well... Hold on, hold on. Is there a World War coming up? We're going to have to... Yeah. Out? I can't imagine how that happened. I was not expecting to do that, uh, given... <laughs> The third film that we're gonna talk yeah, about. Yeah, no. 
but, but like some people had it in their mind as, Hey, maybe we should preserve some of his, you know, film equipment and his techniques yeah. and his props and stuff. And I got, apparently and, some of his stuff was in a museum and some, a lot of it got lost through bombing and shit. Like yeah. it just, yeah. So apparently after finishing work on this, he intended the releases in America so he could make a big bunch of coin. Right. But Thomas Edison, uh, entrepreneur that he was Tom, Thomas uh, Edison, uh, 20th century. I, I was about to say the 20th century's greatest shithead, but that's not true at all. But no. among the 20th century's greatest shitheads, he certainly was one of the influences for capitalist shithead. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he basically just uh, secretly had his uh, people make copies of this and distributed it on his own oh. and uh, got all the money. And then he and then he whined and complained when a bunch of people moved to California and created a thing called Hollywood. Yeah. So <laughs> how you know, dare you do the thing that I did to George Millet? <laughs> uh fuck you, Thomas. Uh yeah, fuck you, Thomas all... Edison. You're a shithead. Yeah. This film apparently had one of the largest budgets for a short film of its era. So I don't know this translates to like dollars uh, at this time but uh budgetary uh, estimates range from 10,000 to 30,000 francs that's a that's a theatrical production sure yeah yeah i, I mean, mean you know they're, they're, yeah. they're i mean but it, it looks it looks like a big theatrical production like you look yeah. at it and like you got you got paintings you got this like beyond all the like technical issues of dealing with cameras and shit mm-hmm. you got a bunch of actors you got like yeah no i can i buy it completely and I mean, you know, France's economy hadn't tanked yet. It's not like the war happened yet. So it's not like it devastated them at this point. But right. So we'll move on now to uh, The Great Train Robbery from 1903. And this is directed by Edwin S. Porter. Uh, he's also known mostly for uh, The Prisoner of Zenda, I think, from 1913. It's probably the one that kind of comes to most people's minds uh, as a you know name of a title. He did a lot of stuff, too. Like, he's got hundreds of credits. Uh, a lot of them, you know, missing again. Uh, written by Scott Marble, Edwin S. Porter, Alfred C. Abaday as the sheriff, Bronco Billy Anderson as Bandit, the shot passenger, and the tenderfoot dancer. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Justice D. Barnes is the bandit who fires at the camera. Uh, he's the famous one. He's the one. Mm-hmm. If you know this film, you know that shot. Uh, Walter Cameron is the sheriff. Donald Gallagher is the little boy. Frank Hannaway as Bandit, Adam Charles Heyman as a Bandit, Tom London as the locomotive engineer, John Manis Doherty Sr. as the fourth Bandit, Robert, uh, I'm not even going to read the rest of these. It, no, it's fine. kind of doesn't matter. Hug- yeah, just again, just for the record, I'm clicking on this. Uh, Justice D. Barnes, the, uh, the man who yeah. shoots into camera, was born on October 2nd, 1862. Yeah. His career ended in 1917, I think. Like, he actually worked... Like, this is a production from Edison, right? Like, under his... Right, or, you know, from one of, the, one of Edison's, uh, like, dudes. Uh, yeah, so he, yeah. he so he worked until, I think, like, kind of that corporation or whatever fell apart kind of thing. Right. And then he went on to, like, uh, sell cigars and stuff for a while until he <laughs> after retiring from acting barnes moved to new york moved to yada where he worked as a milkman he later on to cigar store he died february 6th 1946 so he lived all the way up through world war ii yeah he lived a long life yeah. um, good for you buddy uh so synopsis is here uh, again from our friend hugo 
Um, <laughs> says, uh, four gunmen plan to rob a train, not only of its cargo, such as money, but the valuables on the possession of the passengers. They are not averse to shooting to kill anyone who's out, out of line, which includes anyone not listening to their instructions. To pull off the plan, they have to subdue the manager of the station where they plan to board the train, board without anyone noticing that they are doing so, subdue anyone guarding the cargo, and take off the engine so that they can stop the train to corral the passengers in one area while they are being robbed, and then make their getaway. Even if they are able to get to the stage, they may have to deal with those who now know what they've done, a posse which very well may be on its way. And yeah, that's kind of what happens in this film. Sure, yeah. Um, it's nice reading synopses of films that are this short because it's basically just, uh, yeah, just describe everything that happens in the film. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. 12 minutes. I think the only version of this is about 18 frames per second as far as I can see. Like this is. Yeah, this this feels a little bit more like locked down in terms of kind of what it was, which is probably a sign of Edison's just control over everything that would have like, like this got like set in stone a little bit more because Edison could make that happen. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so what do you think of this one? Um. Oh shit! No, clearly, no, no. It's great. Uh, this is. Uh, I was looking at this. Not the actual first western. It turns out there is a two-minute film from England called uh, "Kidnapped by Indians," uh, which <laughs> oh, was uh, a few years earlier than this. I think like eighteen, eighteen ninety-eight or eighteen, eighteen ninety-nine, um, something like that. Um, which uh, does not appear to exist, but uh, some some like behind-the-scenes footage exists, which is kind of interesting. It's just kind of like whatever got handed over to us by history, whatever people found in a warehouse somewhere, you know, 30 okay. years after the fact. So not the official first Western. I mean, that does get to be kind of uh, debated. I suspect we're going to be talking a lot about Westerns this year, yeah. um, which is going to be glorious. But uh, no, it's amazing how complete this is. Yeah. By 1903, this is widely considered to be kind of the birth of intercutting, or at least sort of the, one of the early examples that, that kind of really works, because you've got a group of four people, and again this feels really basic to us now right but you've got a gang of four people who show up and then two people do one thing and two people do another thing Mm -hmm. and you cut between them and the audience is suspect is expected to follow the logic of okay four and then two and then two but that is a really innovative cutting strategy certainly more than what we see in a trip to the moon um, which is really kind of straightforward. You also get shots that are on the back of a moving train in yep. this, which again feels, <laughs> you know, it it is the sort of thing. It's hard to kind of that that must have been something to see because how many people watching this had probably never been on a train? Sure, sure. I mean, well, I mean, by nineteen oh three, I mean, well, maybe, maybe the trains, okay, maybe, the trains, yeah. trains were pretty. I mean, train, not not just they okay, were. Maybe. Um, Maybe I'm wrong there, but I mean... Not so much they've never been on a train, but the idea of, like, kind of simulating it through cinema. Uh, like, there is a certain sense of, like, kind of going on, like, a big IMAX ride. Or going on, like, sort of sort of like a, one of the, like, like Disney rides or whatever. Where there's, like, this immersive element to it. And I, I feel like there's that's a lot of what's kind of going on here. Where audiences maybe were not expecting to kind of get that, like, sense of vertigo mm-hmm. from watching footage from like kind of having it and not just 
on a like screen in front of me now and not like from our modern perspective where we're kind of used to that, but you know, you're kind of sitting and you're kind of expecting like, Oh, I'm going to watch a, a stage play. I'm going to sit, I'm going to do the thing. It's going to be great. Maybe I've got some popcorn and then uh, I'm watching uh, the interstitial bit with, uh, you know, there are actors doing things. Oh, boom, boom guns. And then suddenly I'm on the back of a train. Yeah. It's <laughs> moving, right? I mean, it's just moving. And that, that, that kind of sense of vertigo. Um, you know, I say that what I was going to say is like there are you get these kinds of, I think, slightly dismissive kind of reads that are um, this this kind of idea that, uh, you know, the train is moving towards the audience and people like fled the theater in fear. Yeah, I, and I think that people sort of understood what they were looking at. But I think that there's also kind of a moment of like sort of sort of recognizing that like this, this is meant to be this like really intense experience for the audience. This is meant to be edge of your seat kind of like high technology really kind of immersive kind of idea and again something that you know you probably don't get just sort of watching it in a in a panel on on youtube in 2019 yeah. or 2020 it just can't have the same effect and and so yeah. that's why i keep trying to kind of highlight that it's again it's amazing how well this works of just kind of like that early you're intercutting, you kind of understand kind of what's going on at any given time. You get like the shots of kind of uh, the gang kind of, um, you know, invading the, the, the engine room and uh, kind of kind of going on that. And uh, you get a really nice sequence where um, we're outside the train. They pull everybody off and this guy tries to flee and they just shoot him. They just fucking yeah. shoot him. And uh, like that's it's a pretty intense little moment in, in, in a uh, film like this, you know. Pre-code stuff where you know yeah. in, a, in a movie you could shoot somebody and you could actually you know it, it didn't have to cut from the guy shooting to the guy falling dead. It it could be all in one 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 yeah, scene. No, no. Yeah. I mean, this is well before that. I mean, you know. So, um, but but yeah, no, uh, definitely. And just kind of your. I, this is probably the slightest of the three that we're going to talk about tonight. I mean, in the sense of, you know, the other two kind of have a little bit more of an idea kind of behind them in terms of kind of what they're going for. But this is obviously the most influential of the three. It's the most technically innovative yeah. uh, in terms of kind of what they're going to end up doing with cinema. And in the sense that it's the very first Western in, in some, you know, kind of abstract sense. Uh, and that's going to become the dominant mode of like Hollywood for the next 60 years, 60, 70 years, basically. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it's hard to overstate the importance of this. But yeah, no, really, really effective. It's just kind of hard to kind of talk uh, too much about it. Although apparently the actual uh, train robbery was kind of built on um, an actual real life uh, Butch Cassidy yeah. uh, robbery from 1900, uh, which I think, the, again, the audiences at the time would have kind of recognized it as like, oh, no, this is that thing that Butch Cassidy did a couple of years ago, as opposed to um, that vaguely fictional character that we remember mostly through this movie that most of us haven't seen. Um, <laughs> and also we need to put Butch Cassidy on the Senate's get on the uh, list of things we're going to try to do this. Yeah. Year. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. I like right off the bat, you can see how much more modern this is yeah. compared to the other two film. Honestly, like even the film that comes after that we're, that we're watching. Uh, yeah. That's uh, six years later. Um, doesn't, doesn't feel nearly as, uh, as modern in terms of the way it's shot. Certainly. Yeah. Although, you know, the, the next film we're going to talk about, that was just done by one guy exclusively. So <laughs> that's a big right. difference there. Um, but yeah, this, you can see how influential this is just by the fact that it's this linear narrative with, you know, really good editing and uh, you got real, these really effective outdoor action shots that is just kind of 
something you don't really see before this necessarily all that much. And, and you they're know, really gorgeous, which yeah. at the time doing doing outdoor, I mean, even today doing real outdoor uh, cinema, outdoor shooting is kind of a crapshoot with modern technology and like yes. digital cameras and everything like that. Um, because you're always going to run into like the bullshit, um, you know, going along with that. And how much more so, you know, just a few years after the entire technology was invented. Um, <laughs> I do wonder like how long it took to like get some of those shots, uh, particularly on the back of the, the, the train, I like had... how they dealt with like the rattling of the, of the train, you know, like you can imagine, like they've got to kind of build some kind of rig to kind of keep the vibrations down so that, uh, you know, and you got to think of the size of the cameras they were using too. Like, oh yeah. They're, they're huge. They're huge. So you, you need something big just to keep that goddamn thing in place for moving yeah. around. Yeah. I think the techniques they used in this innovative as hell, vastly more influential, I think, than uh, Trip to the Moon, because Trip to the Moon is kind of stuck in that stage play kind of thing, yeah. where this is obviously like cinema. It feels it feels like a movie. It feels yeah. very much like a movie. Yeah, no, definitely. We we get a square dancing barn dance scene. Just for, we for get comic relief. We get yeah. comic relief. Uh, you, you could also... A Yankee uh... shows up and tries to <laughs> dance, and they, and they shoot at his feet. Clearly, yeah. I mean, this is only like let's be clear here. This is only a few years past the Virginian, um, Mm -hmm. which was the original Western novel, uh, in I think 1902 or something like that. You know, the Western, (laughs) you know, the old West as a thing is basically like 1865 to 1900, and so we're only a few years past that. Yeah, and we're already mythologizing it into like a thing. I mean, you know, they were mythologizing it as it was going on too. Right, right. Yeah, no, clearly, clearly. But but like this the you know, there is a sense in which cinema was invented at this moment at which you know, they could start to like capture that and kind of use it and suddenly and, and so you you've got to kind of see this as is almost a sort of like capturing a bit of nostalgia, even though this is shot mostly in New Jersey from what I understand. I, I mean I mean, was this not the period where Wyatt Earp was now like a consultant on movie set and shit? <laughs> <laughs> How was it done at the old OK Corral there, Wyatt? You know, like, and then you know, then you get a film where people are shooting at each other for thirty minutes, and when when the OK Corral happened in like thirty seconds, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> we had to do some of those uh, Zapatista films that were actually consulted on by Pacho Villa. <laughs> 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 we're and never we- going to get to nineteen forty. That's what's going to happen. Here. <laughs> So the honestly the only the only thing that takes me out of this a little bit is the uh, scene where they throw a dummy off the train. Like that's <laughs> the, there's a there's a harsh cut where yeah. a guy's beating up one of the uh, engineers, and uh, it cuts to him using like a rock or a piece of coal or something to bash his brains in, and then he throws this obvious straw filled dummy off the train, and it's like you didn't need to do that, like. <laughs> I mean, you gotta you gotta kind of give them at least some kind of credit of like, yeah, they didn't really know how bad that was gonna look compared yeah. to the rest of it, you know. And also, again, like audiences would not have been like it, it, as sophisticated in terms of kind of understanding what they were looking at. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, I get I get what you're saying. I agree. Um, I'm willing to give them a pass on the on the story oh, oh. because 
clearly this is not the last time there was a bad special effect no, I was in gonna, a movie. I was about to say, highly influential to uh, Italian uh, film, uh, where you know you had a lot of bad dummy effects and no sound shot on on stage. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, really pioneers again to yeah. uh, to spaghetti westerns of 1967. It's gonna be great. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, really, I, I, really, I, what we can do is we can look at those films and look back and go, no, this is really just a throwback, a callback to the original western. Yeah, like ultimately, yeah. yeah. And I think the final shot, maybe it's partly because it's so historically significant, you know, and it's kind of like something you know. I don't know, I, I get some sort of like uh, weird, uh, visceral kind of chill yeah. watching that shot. Like, it's just, there's something something about it that feels kind of transgressive for the period. And apparently um, different shots of it, di- different cuts of it, like some of them would place it at the beginning, some mm. would place it at the end, some would kind of put it more towards the middle, as like like kind of during the action. I mean, you know, apparently that was that was kind of Depending on how the distributor, how the how the, how the um, theater owner kind of wanted to uh, cut it together, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, in sort of the the current version and sort of what seems to be intended by the filmmakers, um, it's kind of there at the end, and it is again, it's a beautiful shot. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's hard to you know um, criticize it on on those kinds of grounds, and uh, I mean, again, guy was born in eighteen sixty two, so <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> you're looking you're looking today that man would be 170 years old so uh, yeah you know like i don't know i keep coming back to that but it is it is kind of one of those just i just keep like i'm, I'm always astonished by it, you know like uh that that immediate connection to history um, so. uh yeah so uh like like we said porter uh had been working for edison since about uh 1896 uh he was he was projecting films for him you know he came from the sort of technical side of things so he tried to incorporate that into film editing and photography for this. Uh, most films of this time sought to replicate the perspective of someone viewing a, a play, like we yeah. like we said with Trip to the Moon. As a result, uh, scenes were almost exclusively shot directly at eye level uh, with a static camera. Porter's camera work was much more dynamic and fluid, and you can definitely see that here. Uh, riding on top of the train is just like kind of a, again, like... I said before, sea change kind of, yeah. you know. I mean, again, so much of this stuff was destroyed around that time. So it's hard to say, well, was this literally the first time that was done? Somehow I doubt that. Probably. Um, yeah. But it's the early example that we have to talk about. And so we get to kind of use that as the example. Um, so. uh, but apparently he incorporated stop motion photography, matte shots and painted in coloring to make the film. So yeah, there is colorized versions of this, but it's, it's only very slightly colorized. It's like, right. it, it's one of those things where we put color in a certain scene, but everything else is black and white kind of idea, yeah. which actually would, you know, happen in films after this, you know, to make an artistic statement. Kind of yeah, thing. No, no, yeah. You, you add color to certain elements to draw attention to them, which is, well, even today, part of the problem of you know, how do you how do you film things so that people will like remember yeah. the bit that you need them to, so they know <laughs> you know like it's it's uh, you know again it's funny how like so many of the like technical challenges are things that are just going to keep coming back over and over again like yeah yeah we colorize certain sections so that like you know like remember where the fucking gun is you douchebag. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's obviously... and today and today we use like big CGI effects to be like, look at where the gun is. All right, there we go. You know, <laughs> uh, so the success of this inspired similar films. The first uh, premiering less than a year later in uh, 1904 was 
remake of the same name directed by someone called uh, Sigmund Lubin. He, and then he went on to make The Bold Bank Robbery in 1904. <laughs> and uh, then there's another one called The Hold Up of the Rocky Mountain Express. Uh, Porter himself tried to recapture the previous success with The Life of the American Cowboy in 1906. And a parody of this uh, titled The Little Train Robbery. 1905 with an all-child cast <laughs> with in which a larger gang of bandits hold up a mini train to steal their dolls and candy. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> I want to see that, honestly. If that exists, I want to see it if it's still around. I I feel I feel like I feel like we can add that to next week if it, if it exists, we should do that. Yeah. So we can move on now to our final film, The Battle in the Clouds, also known as The Airship Destroyer from 1909. Probably the easiest way to find it if you're looking for it is to yeah. Google The Airship Destroyer. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, directed by Walter Arbuth, uh, who himself has 167 credits uh, under his name from directing. and <laughs> Only 167 yeah, credits? So that loser. Like, that loser. Fucking lazy compared to the last two guys, right? Like, you know. Inventor uh, uses a wireless controlled flying torpedo to destroy enemy ships. And that was uh, given to us by the British Film Catalog on IMDb. And yeah, that's kind of what happens in this. This is very much a vignette. Uh, more yeah. than a, more than a, it is kind of a narrative, but um, yeah, uh, Daniel, what do you think of this one? I think this is honestly my favorite of the three that we're watching. Okay. Uh, at least the one that I most revisit. Like uh, you know, not that I don't know. I watched them all like two or three times, you know. So it's not like uh, you know they're <laughs> they're so short. It's hard to. But th- this is the one that like, kind of really made me possible because I didn't know it by reputation. It was just mm-hmm. kind of like you know you put it on the list and. Well, yeah, yeah, I haven't, I haven't even heard of that. And then I watched it. And I'm like, wow, that's that's really effective. The combination of live action footage and the, an, the early animation mm-hmm. is, um, again, feel <laughs> we're going to keep landing on this word. It feels really innovative uh, for, for the time. I think for me, the thing that I keep coming back to is uh, this is five years before World War One was going to start. It definitely predicts like aerial bombardment. Yeah. Um, which is less, I'm not saying that the film is, is prescient as much as it's a sign that everybody knew what was going to happen. Everybody knew this was coming. And, uh, I know we've got some World War One shit kind of on our, our list to do. So we're going to kind of come back to that, but it's hard to view this without kind of viewing it through that lens of, you know, this, this was kind of the, the, the innocent time before that. We, uh, we saw some of these themes in the Sherlock Holmes films that we yeah. did. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Same idea. Yeah. Yeah. That said, I I do kind of love it. Does it does kind of go back to that more proscenium staging, that more kind of like stagey stage play kind of stuff? But I think it advanced slightly from what we see in a trip to the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly in the sense of uh, you know, it's one guy kind of making a kind of making his his statement about this. Like you've got basically like a scaffold that they're like dropping bombs from. And then it's very clearly like a couple of guys on a scaffold and they're just kind of dropping these like objects down. You know, it feels really kind of low budget and adorable by the context of the films. Like it it feels very uh, like an artistic statement as much as it is kind of a limitation of technology, which, you know, we don't necessarily sort of get to view um, these films through that lens because we just kind of assume like, Oh well, that's all the money. That's the best they could do. It's like yeah, he probably could have done better, but he chose <laughs> not to. And I think that's an interesting choice. You know, I really like the sort of 
like I feel like this one has the strongest narrative in the sense of, you know, there's a, there's a bombing crew that's kind of coming in and you cut to like, you know, gentleman, uh, scientist adventurer who's like, I have a winged craft. I can just go look, stick the wings in and we can go take on those Jerry's. Don't you see? You know? <laughs> and um, there was kind of a little bit more of a, a narrative than we see certainly. And uh, I mean, and that's not, that's not a disrespect to the other two films, but I, yeah. I think there is a, like, again, it feels, it feels kind of respect modern in terms of you know if you only got eight minutes that's how you do you know that's just kind of what you do no i just i find this one uh, i find this one really enjoyable i find it enjoyable in a uh kind of modern movie sense as opposed to uh, you know it feels very uh streamlined uh as opposed to the other two which have a little bit more of a you know they're more well certainly uh trips in the moon is more thoughtful mm-hmm. uh, this seems to be something that uh, it feels like it's kind of leaning more into uh, sort of like the action adventure genre in a way. Um, and, and I enjoy that. I think, I think that's, that's really interesting. It's, it's, it feels deeply commercial, despite the fact that it's basically made by like one dude. Um, and yeah. Weird costumes uh, and uh, casters of gas. Yeah. I mean, you can tell it's just one guy because the special effects are kind of, they're definitely honestly. I think the special effects in this are worse than the previous two films. Like, yeah, yeah, they're definitely much more amateurish. But I mean, Booth he actually has a similar background from the director of our first film, where he was a magician. Yeah. Um. So uh, he's kind of the slightly the British counterpart of. Well, I feel like what what this one gets right is the the like the cutouts, the uh, mm-hmm. like the 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 animation of the uh, of the airships. And that's something that Melias doesn't do. Melias is all about like, you know, we hit a dude with an umbrella and then he disappears and it looks amazing. And it does. It does it looks amazing. Yeah. I'm not I'm not criticizing that. Um this is a lot more like we look through a spyglass and suddenly we can look at like moving drawings. Look at how crazy this is. Um and so I feel like kind of like criticizing this on the grounds that you know, the two guys on the scaffolding, uh, you know, throwing bombs. <laughs> don't look particularly effective or like some of the, some of the intercutting is not quite as uh, good as like, like the backgrounds don't look as nice. Um, I feel like that's kind of not what this is meant for. Although again, I kind of liked the more handmade quality to this. Um, I, I really, I really enjoy that aspect to it. The designs look clunky, but at the same time they kind of look steampunkish. Yeah. Like, yeah. You, you kind of get that influence. And honestly, it kind of predicts what the technology would kind of look, like in the next yeah. 10 to 20 years like yeah. it's not far off like a lot of this stuff was very it, it, it was made to look fun it was it was made functional it wasn't made to look pretty like you know like a lot of these war machines and stuff like that this is kind of predicting they're made to be functional and efficient they're not made to look you know like fucking sports cars and shit like that right. you know? exactly yeah. um and i mean this is it, it, it's kind of in a slightly long line of British invasion fantasy at this point. Oh, where, no, no, definitely. Yeah, no, no. Where, well, I mean, also, we're also looking at, like, air war being predicted yeah. six years after the airplane was invented. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, at this point, you got to kind of think people aren't thinking, you know, they look at what the Wright brothers did with their with their airplane. They're kind of not thinking the technology necessarily is going to progress beyond that necessarily. So you're still going to have this like clunky looking awkward plane flying around. They're thinking more the balloons are the more efficient yeah, way yeah. of doing this. And 
yeah, it, it's just kind of it kind of stems from you know War of the Worlds. This idea of oh, we're an island empire, but we could be invaded from the sky, kind of idea. You know, well, I'm just just hitting on something you just said. Like uh, <laughs> the warships are going to be zeppelins. They're going to be like yeah. these these uh, dirigibles. They're going to be these kind of lighter than aircraft filled with helium. But uh, we British scientists and adventurers. Um, and uh, high-tech people are going to be able to use our ingenuity to build heavier than aircraft that that despite being smaller because clearly no uh, heavier than aircraft could ever uh, actually compete uh, in terms of uh, scale with one of those what are those behemoths um, and yet we're going to be able to compete with them uh, regardless through our sheer ingenuity yeah, yeah. I, think, I think there's a, I think there's an element to that. I hadn't really considered that, but you're right. That that's clearly something that that's here in the in the film. Yeah, definitely. I'll just say like one piece of trivia on this. Uh, Booth followed this up, sort of hit, sort of a running theme with him for the next few years. Uh, he had another one called the Aerial Submarine from 1910, sure, uh, and the Aerial Anarchists from 1911. And I think that's the one that's missing. What one of those two films oh. is does not exist anymore and then the and the other one is only in the um custody i guess of like some sort of british film institute and they have not released it oh those it's bastards yeah those bastards and then there's another one called the menace of the air from 1915 that's also apparently kind of similar but <laughs> so he was a big fan of making movies about about people fighting each other in planes that's it's called funny. it's called fetishes, Daniel. That's, yeah, no, it's not, it's fine. <laughs> no, I, I like this one. Um, I think I like the Great Train Robbery out of the most, uh, as, sure. far, as far as like just something I can follow a little bit better. Yeah, but uh, I mean, if I was just going to go like overall design wise, Trip to the Moon is fucking amazing. Yeah, these are all. I mean, these are all masterpieces in their yeah. own way. Like it's it's hard to. You can't judge these by modern standards, and I think yeah. you know um, if I say if I say I like um, if I say I like the 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 airship, uh, you know, <laughs> it's the best. It's partly just based on like I hadn't kind of had that one wash over me before, and um, I kind of liked the more handmade nature nature of it. Um, you know, it <laughs> it feels a little bit more like kind of a personal vision. Um, although well, they're all personal visions at this point. Yeah, so, you know. and in a way, I mean. Airship Destroyer, it's definitely much more, in, in, in a way, much more historically important in the fact that it kind of really does kind of put on screen, basically for the first time, predicting what the rest of the half of the, that century is going to be like, as yeah, far no, as like, warfare and stuff. Like it's, I mean, you know, in in five years, you're going to be seeing this for real, and it's going to be like the bloodiest war in history. The war to end all wars. It's um, gonna be yeah, it's gonna be a lot worse. Which thankfully, than, which thankfully that was the end. That was the end of wars in the twentieth century. Yeah, so. I'm glad that that stopped because yeah. you know you see these bombs that are dropped off these scaffold balloons. Yeah, that uh, you know if they don't hit, they, they they hit and just poof in front of somebody's house. They poof and, and don't poof. do any damage. But if um, they do hit your plywood house, blow it all the fuck. No, no, like, they hit right in front of your house. And they hit, and they do a poof, and then you run up and go ah, and then you run away, and then the house falls down. That's how. <laughs> that's how or if they works. hit your, uh, 
they hit your armored car that has like a big hole in the front of it where you can easily shoot into it, kill everybody in the fucking thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, still, they they were kind of you know predicting also you know armored vehicles and stuff like that too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot in this that it's you know Booth was on to something. He he didn't have the money to like make a big production that looked great, but for what he pulled off was still good. Like I still like the perspective shots of the fucking plane where it's like flying right in front of you. And then, you know, it's, it's made to uh, make you think, okay, so it's doing a circle and then it's coming around to the dirigible and taking a shot at it. And then it's coming back and then it's going to come flying in front of you again. And then it's going to go after the dirigible again. And I mean, the, the thought behind it is like, yeah, the, this guy had a vision. Yeah, the, and and the concept is, and I guess that's what I'm landing on. Like, that's more sophisticated in its way, yeah. despite the fact that the execution doesn't quite work um, than uh, anything we see in the in the other two films. It's it it doesn't have the the budget to make it work, and it doesn't have the um, you know it doesn't have the sophistication. But there's an idea there that yeah. it lends into you know kind of what we're gonna see as as cinema develops as as people sort of lean on that idea and then like kind of figure out how to make it work. And uh, that's probably what we're going to see next week. <laughs> yeah. So, so what are we doing next week? Uh, <laughs> so this week we did three films, uh, the longest of which was 12 minutes long. <laughs> and uh, next time we're going to do the perils of Pauline, which is, I think uh, it's a multi-part serial. So we're going to do our first serial, not our last one that we're going to do in this series. Yeah. And this is over three hours. I can't remember exactly how long it is, but it, it's, <laughs> it's pretty long. Yeah. We're going to do the perils of Pauline, but this is a, uh, I think a 12 part serial of which uh, most parts are less than 30 minutes. So, um, you know, and that is from 1914, so it's a uh, it's a few years uh, down the line again, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Um, this mm-hmm. this is the this is one of those that is widely considered to have invented the cliffhanger. Um, yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. I have not seen this yet, so we'll see. Yeah, me uh, We'll see. We'll see how we how we respond to it. Um, part of part of what I'm doing here is uh, hopefully uh, looking at stuff that making us uh, uh, watch stuff we wouldn't have watched otherwise. So uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do the perils of Pauline. Um, so yeah, cool. Anybody who wants us to do any films from 1910 to 1913, uh, let us know, uh, and maybe we'll do them next year because we're not we're not going back. We're not going back. We're not, not going, going forward. Onwards and upwards. Spiraling. We're never going to get to 1940 otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you got to give us a little bit of slack here, people. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine the hardcore fans of you know. Some uh, some uh, great list of short films that were produced in 1912. Like, how dare you skip this? Oh, you 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 fucking saw Jeff Williams' goddamn comment. It's like, yeah. I'd love it if you guys just did silent films all year. Like, <laughs> fuck you, Jeff. We're <laughs> we can't yeah. do that. Do your own fucking podcast, dude. Yeah. Like, you know. <laughs> I mean, we're gonna do a couple, but I mean, dude, we. We're we gonna do get... more than a couple. We're doing yeah. a lot. Like we've we've got probably like two months of silent films scheduled ahead of us. Like you know, we got to get to the talkie sometime this year. Yeah. <laughs> we got to hit that haze code eventually. You know, yeah, like somehow, it's... somehow. <laughs> we Although got... we are gonna do some of those pre haze, uh, you know, some some of those uh, some of those like deeply sexy films that display adultery. Um, I've got mm. a couple. Of, I've got a couple of those on the list, and I'm I'm looking forward to those. So, uh, but yeah, yeah. Pearls yeah. of Pauline, 
and uh, apparently she hangs off a cliff, and that's all I know about it. And we're gonna do it. Uh, it's gonna be great. Uh, so, Daniel, where can people find you on the interwebs? Promise Pauline also just sounds like a, like a fetish video today. <laughs> like, actually, it feels like that should be on that should be on like kink.com, The Perils of Pauline. Actually, it sounds like it's a point and click text adventure from Sierra Games from the 1990s. That's oh, what it that sounds too. like. Yeah, no, that too, that too. Honestly, I think maybe there was a video. Actually, I think there might have been a point and click that was called The Pearls of Pauline, if I'm not mistaken. No, no, mistaken. it's a famous title, so I, I, yeah. it wouldn't surprise me if it's been reused a bunch of times. I'm not, you do the you do the trivia. I just pick, I'm just picking the title. So. i got to look into that because yeah. that sounds familiar, and I love Sierra Games. It's going so. to be like Zork. But it's uh, Pauline. It's, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you can find me on the internet. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Daniel Lee Harper. I do a podcast about terrible people uh, who want to genocide a whole lot of us, including me. It's called How to Speak German. It's a terrible title. Nobody gets it. But uh, that's what it's called. So uh, go check it out. It's HowToSpeakGerman.com. Yeah. And you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com or you can find our Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Facebook links, Join the Facebook group, best place to uh, find out what's coming up, and get in contact with us, make suggestions, all that good stuff. Just tell us how shitty we are, how great we are. Either one works. Um, yeah. You know, if, but if, if you if, tell us how shitty we are, we are going to make fun of you on the podcast. Yeah, it's going to happen. Um, and also, you know, uh, I usually don't ask for this, but I mean, uh, you know, wherever you get us, whatever sort of podcatcher you get us from whether it's apple podcasts or whatever the fuck throw us a rating you know five star yeah. rating if you like us and what what other podcast has done the great train robbery <laughs> tell, me, <laughs> tell me which podcasts have done this this is <laughs> you fuck you fucking get down on your goddamn knees right now and let us skull fuck your moon face with our rocket ship <laughs> Where this else you could get it? This is the weirdest idea. Like I presented this to Lee. I was like, "Oh yeah, I've been thinking like we should try this." And it's the most bizarre idea. Like nobody would ever do this. And Lee goes, "Sounds great." <laughs> Which is how you know <laughs> Lee is along with me um does not care about our audience at all. <laughs> That's <laughs> <laughs> We have complete contempt for everyone that might be listening to us. <laughs> you fucking pieces of shit. <laughs> How dare you stop listening. <laughs> we're just going to wait until we get like five listeners and then we're going to be like, and now it's going to be all 80s horror. That's going to be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, Pearls of Pauline next time. And uh, thank you, Daniel. Thank you everyone for listening. And uh, we'll see you again when we see you. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. Cheers.
been listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For other episodes, our links to Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and our Facebook group, as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through.